Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. We are here to worship uh, a Savior that we believe rose from the dead. That's why we're here. That's what Easter is about, uh, to worship and to proclaim a risen uh, King. And our hope and our prayer this whole week leading up to this, and for you guys and for my own heart, has been, Lord, would this not just be an Easter service that you show up to at 11 o'clock and worship and sing and, and hear a sermon and then stay compartmentalized? The reality of Easter, what we celebrate, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just be something that's compartmentalized to a holiday a few times a year or a church service every once in a while, a few times a month, but instead it would be something that transforms our lives. But so often we keep things compartmentalized and I get it, right? Like I'm going to preach here and, and then I'm going to rush home and I'm going to plan the most epic Easter egg hunt for my two boys. I've got two boys, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, Charlie and Miles, and they're, they're really, really incredible guys. Um, and my Easter egg hunts are epic. I mean, I will hide eggs. It will take them years to find. I mean, we're going trees, gutters, digging holes, you name it, barbed wire, the whole deal. Yeah, I'm going to make it. They've got to make it because I have given up on the idea of candy and like little toys, which I used to do, like try to find some toys and get some of the bigger eggs. To, no, I just do cash now. I just do cash. I went to the bank and I actually got coins. I got a whole bunch of dollar coins and I'm just putting dollar coins all throughout my yard. So if you want to swing by, if you're ever short cash, just swing by my house and start digging and you'll find something. Um, and it's because my boys, uh, they get over things so fast, but they don't think they do, right? So um, Charlie, for example, he will get fixated on something that he saw a commercial for or saw a YouTube ad for and he'll be like, dad, I need this. If I could just get this Digimon watch, my life would be complete. And it's like a whole thing for him and he'll talk about it for weeks and weeks and it's like, if I could just get this watch, everything else in my world the rest of my life, this will be enough for me, dad, if I could just get the, and then we get him that watch and it's awesome for a good solid four to five days. And then he's moved on, right? There was a robot dinosaur that he wanted that he really, really wanted and like, God, dad, this will complete me. If I can do this as a man, I will be complete as a man. If you'll just get me this, those things. And then it moves on and we think, oh, this is gonna be enough. And my six-year-old, my six-year-old is way worse at it. My six-year-old will be at a gas station and his is like, dad, this $4 bag of Sour Patch, like you buy this for me, this is enough for this will last. You don't have to pay for college. This is all I need. Like that's what it is. And he gets so fixated on the here and now, and this is what I need. And, and this will su be sufficient for the rest of my life. And we do that, right? We do that, right? What happens in my little six-year-old's heart at a gas station when he walks down the candy aisle and, and he loses all perspective. And it's just, if I could just have this, this will this will fulfill me. We do that all the time in our life. This, this one thing, this achievement, this internship, this grade to get this job, to get this relationship to get, or this relationship to hold on to, or this uh, ability to be liked or to be accepted. These things are things that inherent within us, we have this driving factor asking us, is it enough? 
and, and we fool ourselves all the time into thinking this will be sufficient. If I could just get this for me, then everything will be fine. Everything will be sufficient. And yet we look and search and yet God's word teaches us where that's found tied to this savior that we worship. This God who we say is worthy, is enough, is sufficient. Do we really believe that? Is it a compartment that we, we nod our heads to on a Sunday morning and then go and live our lives and keep Jesus in this cute compartment and then chase after all of the other things that we want to fulfill ourselves? We all do it, right? And yet this Jesus who is sufficient, being made personal is everything. Um, let me tell you a bit about my story. And if you've walked with me or been around me for a little while, you've maybe you've heard this. It's a big part of my story. I was, grew up in the church, grew up going to Easter services, was Christian. You would ask me all through middle school and high school, yeah, I love Jesus, I know Jesus, and, and really genuinely did to, to what I understood at, at my age at that time. Um, actually graduated high school and was like, man, I'm going to go share Jesus with people and do ministry. And so when I graduated high school, I moved overseas and was doing ministry. And so I was doing full-time ministry, talking to people about Jesus and, and loving them and the whole deal, right? Wearing the, the Jesus badge and doing the whole thing, right? Um, and I remember I was overseas to do ministry and I'm hanging out with, with people who are agnostic and atheists and they were born you know, Buddhist, and they were born uh, Muslim, and I remember this thought of being this guy, grew up in Texas in the Bible Belt, my grandparents are Christians, my parents are Christians, did the church thing, you know, whenever I was supposed to, or whenever it was convenient, or whenever I wanted to, and I remember very specifically this question that just stuck in my head of just this idea of how convenient, right, like how convenient it is that the one way to God, right, the one way to our designer that we're created to be in a relationship with just happens to be the way that I was indoctrinated into, right? Just happens to be what kind of everybody in Garland, Texas, where I grew up, that was kind of our default setting. That we all would have nodded our heads and said, yeah, Jesus is, is the way, right? It just happened to be the way that my grandparents taught and my parents taught, and now here I am in the real world, and I'm thinking, how convenient is this? Do I really believe any of this? Do I actually believe that Jesus is the only way to our designer and creator to be in a relationship? Do I really believe the Bible? Do I really believe that Jesus died and, and actually rose from the dead historically 2,000 years ago? And all of these doubts and questions crept into my life. And, and mind you, I'm over there doing ministry. And I'm like, I don't know if I believe any of this. And it began what really, for me, was one of the healthiest, richest seasons of my life. Because the reality is there are great answers to hard questions. And I think growing up in the church for so long, I didn't know that that was a thing. I kind of thought that the answer to every question, theological question or doubt was just like, oh, you just got to believe. Oh, don't, don't ask that. Don't look at that. Don't, don't have those thoughts. You just got to believe and keep your head up and just keep believing and don't ask hard questions. And I realized, no, no, there's good reality and truth and logic and thoughtfulness behind our faith. Make no mistake, it is a faith that we are called to. It's a saving faith that we're called to. But there is so much logic. And so what I hope to do today is a couple things. One, I hope that you feel some freedom if you've ever had doubts that this should be a, the church right? The, the people of Christ should be a safe place to wrestle with that, that you're not alone in that. Um, but also, I want you to see that even the disciples were skeptical, 
right? The disciples were skeptical. It was common, and that skepticism is common, and maybe in some ways healthy. Look at Acts 1-3, and I'll just throw this up on the screen. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead, right? We see in Scripture, he rises from the dead, and he has several interactions with the disciples, but it kind of sums up Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. He sums it up in this verse. He says, he, meaning Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom. And so even in Acts 1-3, we see God's word tell us that even Jesus was sensitive and aware of the fact that people are going to doubt. His followers and the people who he has been leading are going to question, do we really believe you're risen from the dead? And so Jesus shows up and, and he doesn't say, guys, come on, man. He shows up and, and submits himself to say, yes, you can touch me, you can, you can see me, you can interact with me, um, and, and offers these proofs, this evidence. Because here's the deal. The validity of the resurrection of Jesus is everything for Christians, right? The gospel is the, gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's really what that term means. Look how um, Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll be in 1 Corinthians for a good chunk of the sermon. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I'm going to read the first eight verses, and we'll put them up on the screen if that's easiest. But if you want to track along, this is a great place where this word gospel that we throw out a lot, Paul defines it here. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, here's what it is. He says, and he starts in verse 1 of chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here he goes. He's going to start unpacking. This is what he received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And then he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Because this was written decades after his resurrection though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've passed away. Then in verse 7, it says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. The historic overview, the quick, quick view of the gospel historically is right here. Paul lays it out, right? It is the death burial and resurrection of Jesus and then Paul elaborates who he showed up to he showed up to the disciples and these apostles and he even showed up to this crowd of 500 people right what we see is the gospel is this Jewish carpenter named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world in a place called Nazareth is where he was from he he walked the earth he he did this ministry had this incredible following had this incredible impact was crucified, dead, buried, and then rose again. That's the gospel. And that resurrection is going to mean everything because that means he is who he said he was. Right? If he rose from the dead, it validates this is who he said he was. Look at John 14, verse 6. This is one of the statements that Jesus is declaring and putting a stake in the ground. This is who I say I am. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. Now, if you make a claim like this and you say, hey, 
I am the son of God. I am perfect. I am holy. I am the bridge that, that spans between you and imperfect people and a holy and perfect God. You're designed to be in a relationship. I am that person, right? I'm going to say you're crazy, right? You're crazy. You're weird. We should just make sure we watch you with security. Just that's going to be creepy to everybody. But if you say and you tell me you're going to die for the sins of the world and then you die and then you come back to life, now we're paying attention, right? That's what Jesus did. He said, I'm going to die for the sins of the world. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I will be dead, but I will not stay dead and came back to life. All of this, though, hinges did he really come back to life? It all hinges on the resurrection, right? Even Paul admits that if Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, right? If we just are like, well, he like spiritually, he did his thing, he had a great message, he died, but like Jesus' spirit carries on and his message carries on and that. No, no, the apostle Paul says if he didn't actually raise from the dead, this is a joke. This is a joke and let's all go home. Look at further down in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul admits if the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't actually happen in history, then we should all be pitied because this is a horrible hobby, right? Following Jesus with your life and being a Christian is, is not a, a great necessarily way to spend your time if it's not true. It all hinges on the actual resurrection. And so that's what I want to look at, right? I want to spend 10 minutes in the middle of this sermon really looking at an honest evaluation of whether our trust is in something reasonable or is this just something that we're supposed to trust in to make us feel good. Right? So Christianity is kind of an emotional crutch. And if I, if I lean into Christianity, it's, it gives me hope because if I've lost loved ones, I get to see them again. And, and when I feel discouraged, I can, I can pray to a God in the clouds. Is, is that all this is? Or is there actual logic and reason behind our faith tied to this resurrection? And so we're going to look at the arguments in the middle of this sermon on Easter. We're going to look at arguments of why people say the resurrection doesn't, isn't real. What, what are those arguments for the resurrection, against the resurrection, and then how it impacts us? Now, before we do that, um, what do we know, right? Well, what we know is that there was a man named Jesus uh, who lived 2,000 years ago. We see that from, from, obviously, biblical accounts. We see it from extra-biblical accounts. We see he got the attention of Roman historians who weren't Christ followers, right? They weren't Christians. They were just historians documenting there was a man who lived from Nazareth named Jesus who had a ministry that got everyone's attention, right? We know that man also through Roman accounts even, not even through the biblical accounts. We know he was executed by the Roman government. And then here's the other thing we know. Everything in history changed, right? We know something happened then that changed history, right? We know Christianity spread like wildfire throughout the world. We know we're sitting in a coffee shop 2,000 years later in Fort Worth, Texas, right? For some reason, because something happened, followers started spreading and spreading and spreading and, and, and sharing and more and more people believed and there's hospitals and schools 
and missionaries all throughout the world, we know that history changed. Ripples happened. Christians say it's because Christ rose from the dead. Did he? Three theories against the resurrection of Christ. Um, Three theories. These are what other scholars throughout the decades and, and years have said, well, maybe this is what actually happened. Maybe he didn't actually die. Maybe what's called the swoon theory happened. And the swoon theory is a, a lot of philosophers got together and they said, you know, what, what very well could have happened is that Jesus hung on the cross and he actually just became unconscious. And so the swoon theory is, a, is an argument against the resurrection that says Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but he just became incapacitated and went into almost like a coma-like state and they thought he was dead. They took him off the cross. They wrapped him in, in the burial cloths and prepared his body for burial and then they put it in a tomb and then when they rolled the, the stone in front of the tomb that the coolness in the tomb revived his body. And that's a theory that has been floated out there by multiple people to, to be an argument against the resurrection. There's multiple issues that we see with that. One, just scientifically, the ability for um, that to happen um, is, is, feels like a huge step of faith, right? That I would have to believe that his body could be that badly mangled and damaged and whipped and hurt and, and all of those things and then hung on a cross and then he would have the strength to remove the stone and then walk out and evade the guards who would have been standing there um, doesn't scientifically make sense. Uh, Furthermore, we're talking about the Romans. The Romans were really good at executing people. That was their specialty, right? That's what Romans did. They took pride in their ability to execute people and to execute people well. Um, It it talks about oftentimes in crucifixions when, when they would hang people on the cross, they would be hanging from their hands and their feet. And how most people died wasn't loss of blood. It was because they were suffocated. Um, They couldn't get air, and so they suffocated and died on the cross. And the only way they could breathe is by pulling up on the nails in their hands and pushing up on their feet so that they could take a breath of air and then lower themselves back down because they couldn't breathe unless they did that. And so Romans would come after a long amount of time, after they felt like they'd been tortured long enough, and they would come and they would break their legs those who were being crucified, so that they wouldn't be able to raise up anymore and get breath and they would die. Well, and we see in scripture that that the guards, um, Jesus already passed away. They didn't even have to break his legs because he hung without getting air and, and gave up his last breath and hung there. And then instead of breaking his legs, just to verify, the Romans stabbed him, pierced him in the side with a spear, it says, and out came blood and water. And even scientifically, right there, the author of, of this wouldn't have necessarily known all the science behind it, but when your heart fails and your lungs fail, it becomes the sack of water that's produced around them. And so when he was pierced, blood and water showing that his heart had failed, his lungs had ceased to breathe, he was dead. Pulled his body off, wrapped it, put it in a tomb. A tomb wasn't going to revive someone who the Romans had decided were going to execute. Another theory is this. Another theory that gets floated around uh, against the resurrection is the idea of the hallucination theory, right? And it's this, it's the idea, okay, you're a disciple and you've been following Jesus and you're under incredible stress and incredible agony. You've given up three years of your life. You believed this guy. You were follow, you've left everything to follow him, to, to see this new kingdom that he's gonna usher in. And then he gets murdered, arrested and murdered. And so you're just not in a good mental place. And so the theory is, well, maybe they just hallucinated. 
and they just thought they saw Jesus, and they, they saw hallucinations of him, except all throughout the text, we see Jesus showing himself physically to people, and even a group of 500 people, right? So this wasn't just a one-off of, oh, I saw him over here by a light post. Oh, I saw him over here by a tree. Oh, I saw him at the market, right? It wasn't just a hallucination. It was they were having these interactions, even Thomas. If you've heard of the phrase doubting Thomas, right? It comes from this idea that, that Thomas, one of the disciples, who honestly everyone would have wanted to do this when they saw Jesus when he saw Jesus Thomas said I got it I got to touch I got to see your hands let me put my hands in the scars in your hands let me see where they stabbed you on the cross let me let me touch you let me get my hands on you and Jesus is like of course right he 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 walked these 40 days and and gave these evidences these proofs that I am real I am here I'm in person touched him, put their hands on him. And so the last theory is this. And this is probably the most common theory that, that most people who would like to try to deny the resurrection, they would say that the body was stolen, right? Stolen body theory is that those disciples, they'd given up everything, right? You could imagine you, you bought into this idea that Jesus was gonna be the savior and he was gonna change everything and all of that, right? You, you bought into it and then he gets arrested and murdered and you think we've got to perpetuate this thing we're going to look like fools we've got it we've got he was our leverage point um so we've got to make sure that we tell everyone hey he rose from the dead and now and now he ascended and so the theory is that they went and stole the body and hid it here's multiple issues with that um Oftentimes, if you were a little kid and you were, went to Easter service, you'd see like a little picture, or a little Easter video, and it's like a guard outside um, the stone that Jesus was buried in, the tomb he was buried in. But the reality is Romans would have had 16 soldiers. There would have been 16 soldiers at that post guarding the tomb. Um, and so these disciples would have had to get through 16 soldiers to remove the, the stone. And these were soldiers also who it was in their best interest to not let this body disappear, right? They would have feared suffering the same consequence as the body they were guarding if it got stolen, right? These were men who their lives were on the line if they lose this body. And so here you have um, disciples getting past 16, 16 guards. But here's the other thing too. Their, everything got turned upside down, right? After the resurrection of Jesus. And, and like wildfire, it started to spread. And there was this movement and this momentum. And there was revival breaking out in Jerusalem and Israel and starting to spread. And it was making Rome nervous. It was, it was making the Jewish leaders who didn't want this to be the narrative nervous. And all they would have had to do once to snuff out the entire movement of Christianity the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Roman guards, the Roman government, all they would have had to do is produce the body. Just to say, okay, everybody calm down. Let's pull out Jesus' corpse and show everyone his corpse is still here. And throughout history, they were never able to produce a body. Furthermore, here were disciples who had been following Jesus. And if this was a con, right? Track with me here. If this was a con and you're saying, we don't want to look stupid, we could have a lot to gain if we perpetuate this reality and this narrative that Jesus is actually alive and now he's up in heaven, it, we would gain a lot. Here's what happened to the disciples. I mean, if you look through even just history and what scholars say, what happened to different disciples, Andrew, one of the disciples, he, he ended up becoming a missionary in the east, kind of where modern day Russia is. He was crucified himself, hung on a cross. Thomas, right? 
Doubting Thomas ended up in Syria. He was killed by four soldiers with spears. Philip ended up in North Africa. He was put to death. Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. James, which is the author of the book that we've been studying this semester, James was stoned to death. Peter actually, they threatened to crucify him, and he actually asked, legend says, that he asked to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die the same way as his Savior. The Apostle Paul is documented as beheaded by Rome. Matthias, who's, who was one of the disciples who actually took Judas's place, who, who knew Jesus and walked with Jesus, he was burned to death. John is actually one of the people that most scholars believe maybe didn't actually get martyred, didn't actually die for his faith, but he got tortured and then he got left to die on an island, on a deserted island called Patmos. So the idea, if disciples are like, we're going to fake everyone out, and we've got a lot to gain from this, they gained nothing but suffering and death in this world, right? These disciples, if this was a con, if you were trying to con somebody, that might lead right up to the place where it's like, hey, if you don't stop saying this, we're going to kill your family, and we're going to kill you. You might be like, all right, con's over. It was good while it lasted. All of these men, right? The first 300 years of Christianity, the first generation of followers of Jesus, most of them got martyred. Something historically happened, guys. 2,000 years ago, the world changed. These people came in contact with something that doesn't make logical sense. There was a Jesus, he was executed, and now all of a sudden you have a, a whole wave of people who say, I saw and touched the risen Jesus. He is who he said he was. And people said, if you don't stop saying that, we will kill you. And they said, fine, fine. This isn't a con. This isn't a scheme. We don't have the body hit. We have nothing to gain. But Christ, that changed the world. The resurrection changed history. There is overwhelming historical evidence that points to a reality that Jesus physically, bodily rose from the grave. That's what the evidence points to as you study. I mean, there's books and books uh, written on, on this whole topic of the resurrection. Um, 300 years, there were ripples throughout history, right? It wasn't until Constantine in 312 A.D., um, actually decided, you know what, maybe we should stop killing Christians. Maybe they have something and actually took Christianity and said, let's make it the official religion of Rome, right? And then everything changed. And even then, Christianity continued to grow. And, and there, were some, there were some unapologetically dark times in Christian history. After that, there were people who claimed to be Christian that did crazy stuff like crusades and all kinds of, of wonky stuff. But you see the purity in which it was born in for those first 300 years, the trueness of those who actually walked with Jesus changed the world. Here's my question on Easter Sunday today is this. Has it changed your life? Has it changed how you do life as a, as a 19 or a 22-year-old or a college student or an adult or a, a young adult? Or has it changed your life? This historical event, has it changed it? Is your life different? Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus, this Jewish carpenter, rose from the dead. The resurrection, right, the gospel, the resurrection is an invitation for life change. That's what it is. It's an invitation to surrender. How do we do that? 
Paul articulates how he does that in Galatians 2.20. We we talk about this verse a lot because it's so important and it so beautifully wraps up how Paul articulates what his life looks like because of this historical reality. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. So he puts his face, he says, that thing that happened to Jesus, hey, that's my life. I've been crucified with Christ. And he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul is not just acknowledging this historical reality, but he's saying there's this trust, there's this I live my life by faith in that. Not just this reality of, yes, this happened in history, but a faith in him that Jesus is enough for Paul. He says, my life is now his, and I trust him. My faith is in Jesus, that Jesus will be enough for me, more so than anything else. And the historical reality of the resurrection doesn't save anyone. I want you to hear me say that. The historical, acknowledging the historical reality of the resurrection, I mean, even the demons believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. James makes that observation in his letter. The reality of the resurrection validates Jesus' message that he is enough. That's what the resurrection does. It shows us that he is who he said he was and he's doing what he said he was going to do and there is hope in him and he is enough and he is sufficient for my life today right he is better than anything else i can chase he is he is better than the job i want after i get the degree he is he is better he is more sufficient he is more than enough he is better than the relationship i think this is gonna this is gonna fulfill me If I could just get this, we're in the candy aisle of the gas station saying, if I could just get this job, then I'll be enough. If I could just get this relationship or keep this relationship, that will be enough. If I could just be liked and accepted by this group of people, then I will arrive. Then I'll feel complete. Then I'll be satisfied, right? If I could just have this much fun or this adventure, all of those things, pale in comparison, and Jesus says, do you believe that I am enough? Do you believe that he is enough? His followers said, yes, we do, with everything. Their faith pointed to a trust that Jesus is enough that led to a life of surrender, right? It was a, it was a trust. We believe you are who you say you are in your, in your words to us, Jesus, and we surrender our life to you. Right? The idea of surrender is, I mean, if you think of tug of war, right? Tug of war is two people pulling in different directions. And a life of surrender is saying, okay, I'm going to go your way. I trust you. I trust you, your way, not my way. That's what the resurrection invites you to do today and tomorrow and the next day. And for me, when I want to make things about myself and about my comfort and about my accomplishments and my achievements and my glory, And yet the resurrection points and validates this reality that it's not about me, it's about him, my life that I now live. I live in faith in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the impact of the resurrection in our life. It's this moment of saving faith for those who have surrendered their life to that faith, who've said, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I'm not putting my faith in in church or in the moral list of things I'm supposed to do, but saying, I can't do it. I can't earn it. I can't be cleaned up enough in my own good works. I am saved by grace through 
faith. And that is salvation. And there are people here in this room, and I love that you're here. You could have told me the gospel as you walked in. But there's never been a step of faith to surrender your life to that gospel. It's been a category you've acknowledged, something you'd say is true, something you would have nodded your head to. But if you're really honest, you say, have I really put my faith in Jesus or am he just this category? And I've yet to surrender my faith. I, I'm still making about me. It's still chasing after these other things that are enough to get me cleaned up, to get me worthy, to get me satisfied. Today, would everything change? Would your eternity change as you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that there was a king who rose again and now stands before God and says, that's my girl, that's my guy, no matter how far you've wandered. And for those who are saved in this room, maybe from a little kid, you think, okay, great, but how do I grow? How do I, grow? How do I deepen? This is good, this is good, and, and I, I believe this, and this happened, but I'm still stuck. I wanna grow, I wanna get deeper in my faith guess what? It's the same way. The same thing that saves me, my surrender to his way, is the same exact way that I grow in my maturity as a believer, right? It's not, okay, well, I did the, I did the gospel, surrendered my life to Christ. Now I'm ready for like more varsity Bible lessons to really, no, no, it's, it's surrender. It's just deeper, deeper surrender. It's tomorrow morning I wake up and say, God, my life is yours. Mold me and shape me and be in your word, I want to leave you with these three questions. And I, it's, these are questions that are easy to nod your head to, and I, I want to ask, and I'm going to be praying that the Lord will poke your heart and poke my heart. These are questions that convict me, that I need to continue to ask in my life. And the first question is, do you believe this gospel actually happened? Right? And, and man, I love, if you're here and you're like, I got doubts. If you were like me, I mean, I was literally on the mission field to tell people about Jesus. And I was like, honestly, I don't know if I believe it. This feels really weird and emotional and far-fetched and I'm not sure if there's reason behind it. I love that you're here. Investigate that. Ask good questions. Ask questions. Come and find me. Come and find our staff. There's, a whole, there's whole categories of Christian thought called apologetics. And apologetics is literally people asking these questions. Why do we believe the Bible? Why do we believe in the exclusivity of Christ? Why do we believe in the resurrection? Really thoughtful, intelligent men and women throughout history have wrestled with hard questions. So if you're hung up on some hard questions before you can take that step of faith, you're not alone. Don't ignore that. Second question is this. Do you trust Jesus is enough for you? right? Okay, great. I believe in the resurrection. Obviously, I'm here at Easter, but do you trust that Jesus is enough, or is it Jesus plus I need this to really feel satisfied? It's Jesus plus I need to go do all these things to make sure that I'm, I'm cleaned up for him or, or have a life that's worth living. It, it can't just be just Jesus. I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. I'm praying for you. Lean into this. Is he enough? What are the things that when you pray that and ask that before the Lord, you can feel your grip tighten? Jesus, you're enough, but don't you dare take this relationship. Don't you dare make me single way into my 30s. Don't do that. No, no, no. You're enough, but I 
but I had worked so hard for this job, this accomplishment, this degree. Don't you, you're enough. And not that Jesus is a hoarder that wants to steal good things for you. He brings life and life abundantly. But what are those things that your fist clenches tight to? And also, do you know who he is? Are you in his word? Real practical, super practical. You don't have to do this. Um, But our church is doing this thing for the next 21 days. Um, If you want to walk alongside us, you can there's this number you can text. Text the number 21 because it's 21 days and we will send you about three to four minute reading of scripture every day for the next 21 days. Just this is who Jesus says he is. Text 21 to 24253 and for the next 21 days, for three weeks, you ask the question, is Jesus enough for me? Sit with him, hear his word. Who does he say he is? If he rose from the grave, it validates who he says he is. Are you in scripture? Are you listening to him? Do you trust Jesus enough? The last question I want to leave you on is this. Let's say you believe historically what happened. You trust and you're fighting to continue to trust. Have you surrendered? Right? Are are there, are there, actions in your life that it's time to walk away from, actions in your life that you feel like the Lord is asking you to step into or step out of, what are those areas of surrender in your life? Have you surrendered your life to a God who says this is who, this is who you were designed to be in relationship with? That's my hope, that's my prayer. My prayer is that this is not just another Easter, that you come and you celebrate and we then compartmentalize Jesus and we put him in the box and then we move on to the rest of our day and the rest of our week but instead we realize and we remember that what happened in history changed everything for you and for me today. Let me pray over you. Father, thank you for how you love us, God. Thank you for what you've done in history. Thank you for every single person here in this room who showed up to worship you and to to hear a sermon, God. I pray you would meet them in a palpable and powerful way that only you can. Not music, not sermons, not good friends and fellowship and all of those churchy things, but God, your spirit, meet us in this place. Show us the areas that we have yet to surrender. God, convict us. How have we not put our trust in you? What are the other things that we say, well, Jesus is great, but we also need Shape our life, God, to be more and more like you. Father, thank you for every brother and sister in this room, Lord. Would you allow us to leave changed? For your glory, in the name of Jesus, amen.